Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you here at Christ Community Church. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Greetings to Blackberry Creek, Streamwood, Bartlett, uh, St. Charles, and DeKalb, and those watching and worshiping with us online. Uh, DeKalb, I, I, used, I lived in Atlanta for a while, so I always want to say DeKalb, but DeKalb, my apologies as well. Thanks for having me come today. It's great to be here and great to be able to share God's Word with you. If you have a Bible, you can start working your way there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me say particularly thank you for Pastors Jim and Clayton for risking it today. Here's why they're risking it. See, a few days ago, uh, I, I was just, well, on Friday, I was at my doctor who said, you have a serious back problem. And so uh, they have given me uh, drugs, and that's why I'm here today, because of drugs. Um, now, kids, drugs are bad, I want you to know, but not these drugs right now. And so that's what's getting me through the day. And so no matter what I say, if it goes badly, we're going to blame the drugs, if that helps. just So that was a terrible example. Just look to one another and say, it's the drugs. Go ahead. All of our campuses, look to one another and say that. It's the drugs. Go ahead. It's all good to do. Give it a little grace, a little grace for me. I appreciate that. So, so again, uh, thank you for the introduction. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. I lead the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. We invite you to come by any time you'd like to come. I'm relatively new to Chicago. We moved here two years ago this past summer. We've never known a Chicago where the Cubs weren't the recent World Series champions. I understand it's always been that way. They've always been the best team in all of baseball. So that's good to know. I'm the father of three daughters and the husband of but one wife, and uh, Donna's my wife. I have three daughters in high school or in college. That's a statement of my reality and a time for a prayer request as well. But I love it, and I love being here with you. We love being in this community. And, and I, I want to, again, thank, thank you for the series that you're doing. I love that we're talking about the idea of how to have a heart. I love that we're talking about how to engage, and specifically today, how to engage in our community ministries. Now, here's why. Right, the world's broken. We know that. It's been broken since the fall. And a broken and hurting world has produced, well, hurting people. Nobody gets through a broken world without some brokenness. All of us have experienced some brokenness in our lives. And the answer is that Jesus sends us on mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. There's a lot of brokenness in uh, the political environment today. There's a lot of brokenness in our communities. There's a lot of distance and arguing even among people in the same community, sometimes among Christians. Now, there's a fracturing in our society, and I'm convinced it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I'm also convinced that we as Christians have a role to play in the midst of it. So if it's going to get worse, and I don't know for sure, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the, not the son of a prophet. I work at a nonprofit organization. I don't make predictions of the future well. But if it's going to get worse, we need to prepare ourselves for the current reality and the future realities that we do indeed face. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, hopefully you've been working your way over there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you can find it in your app, you can find it in your Bible, you can find it online. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. It's kind of a series of rebukes he has to them, actually. This is the second rebuke. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm just going to read it before we put it on the screen, and then we'll, we'll sort of go through it. In verse 16, it says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new 
is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was appealing or making his appeal through us. We implore you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It says, God made him who knew no sin or had no sin to be sin for us, so we might in him become the righteousness of God. So the passage here is really a beautiful passage, talks a lot about how we relate to others and more. And it's going to talk about how you want to live, but also how you want to love others in the midst of a broken and fractured world. Now in doing so, Paul's reminding us, we're reading this 2,000 years later, that the people at Corinth were not maybe doing this well. Maybe they were joining in the division rather than bringing the reconciliation. What I want to look at today is how do we respond? You want to love your community. That's part of our theme. You want to love your community in the midst of a fractured world. You want to love your community well in a fractured world. Represent Jesus and his kingdom well. I want to give you permission if you have a phone and you want to follow along in the message, but at some point you say, you know what, I really need to do what Ed's talking about. If you're interested in meeting needs in our local community, we'd love to connect you to our community impact ministry. You can find out more. It's as simple as texting to the number on your screen, texting CI to the number on your screen. And Chris Eldridge is our new community impact pastor. Many of you won't know him yet. I know him because he was my student when he was doing his master's degrees, his master's degree over a decade ago. He didn't do really well in class, so I'm hoping <laughs> that it goes really well here. Uh, I was looking at his papers last night, and I was like, seriously? Um, no, actually, I can't, I, I, I can't even, that's illegal, actually. He did very well, right? He did very well. Just want to say, straight A's all the way through, smartest student I ever had. Happy that he's here as well. So we're in our Have a Heart series asking, really, for whom has God given you a passion? Some of you will be involved in God's global mission. You know, some of you will be involved in serving locally and serving, uh, serving people who are struggling in a, in a crisis pregnancy center. Some of you will be involved in ministry to refugees or immigrants. Some of you will be involved in a hundred other different things. But there are four things I want us to see today that I think will help us think rightly about how to engage in a broken world. Number one, if you're taking notes, we get a new perspective. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that, again, Paul's writing, and he says this, he says, he writes this, so then, so from now on, he says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, this is really important. He's saying we're not going to see people the way the world sees people. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Can't you see all around us that people see some people as outsiders and some people as insiders, right? We'll continue that next week here in our series. Can't you see some people are driven by fear or anger from people who are different than them? That's a worldly point of view. Paul says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, right? We didn't understand Christ properly, now we do. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, and I love that therefore. Whenever the Bible has a therefore, you want to ask, what's it there for? It's connecting these thoughts together. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, now my guess is you might even have the next part of this passage memorized. It's one of those verses we take, we memorize, we put it in our refrigerator, maybe make a plaque out of it. It says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Now, I don't want you to miss this because Paul is writing that from now on, we don't see anyone from a world in a worldly way. Now, this is a key moment for us and really in communities across the Fox River Valley and beyond. 
is how do we show and share the love of Jesus in an increasingly divided and hostile world? Well, part of it has to do with us. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It has to start here, not a human way, not a worldly way do we see others, but in a Christ-like, God-honoring way. Now, Paul connects that to our new life in Christ. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. You see, you get a new life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you didn't turn over a new leaf, right? The gospel's not what you do. The gospel's what Jesus did. Let me say it again so we don't miss it. The gospel's not what you do. It's what Jesus did. So you didn't turn over a new leaf when you came to Christ Community Church and all of its campuses. You, at some point, here or elsewhere, have received new life. And that new life, Paul connects with the therefore. He connects to the new look. You get a new view, you see others differently because Christ is in you. The challenge is that sometimes it seems that Christians haven't fully grasped that. I look on social media and I see comment a comment after a Christian that seems rather hateful and rather angry and rather divisive. And I think to myself, is this what Paul had in mind? Is this what Jesus modeled for us? From now on then, he said, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, why does that matter? Well, there's a recreation of self. Now, in Christ, we are made new, right? A recreation of self. But it's also a hint of the creation to come, right? The reality is, is God is making all things new by making people new. Somewhere along the way, someone shared the gospel with you, and, 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 and you, you became a new creation in Christ, right? The old is gone, the, 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 the old nature, the old order, both really, and yet the world around us is still passing away. There's still brokenness all around. 1 Corinthians 7.31 puts it this way. It says, for the world in its present form is passing away. And as the world is passing away, we recognize that God is making a new kingdom, a kingdom of women and men who are followers of Jesus, changed by his gospel. But if that's the case, we've got to see things with a new lens, because we got a new life, we now need to take a new look and look through a different lens. Now you may notice I'm wearing glasses, uh, fabulously, uh, fabulously stylish glasses, might I add. Got them at Costco, and uh, so <laughs> I roll. Now I need glasses, maybe you do as well. Now, because I wear glasses, um, Invariably, sometimes someone uh, will comment on them. It's kind of strange, because I guess, I guess I touch them a lot, I've been told. Well, right, right now, I'm actually the interim teaching pastor at Moody Church in downtown Chicago. Some of you may have heard of Moody Church. It's kind of a you know, Chicagoland treasure. And the, uh, the pastor there, uh, his name is Erwin Lutzer. He became the pastor emeritus, stepped out of the senior pastor role, and they've been looking for a new pastor. I'm the, I'm the in-between pastor. It's called the interim pastor, interim teaching pastor, right? I've been there actually two years. Next Sunday, I'll be there, and it'll be two years since I've become the interim, which I do point out to them is actually longer than two of their actual pastors have served. <laughs> it's time to get a pastor there at Moody Church. But one of the things that's strange when you preach in a historic church that people heard around the world is people send you letters all the time. Many more people watch online than come there in person, and because maybe they've traveled through some of the famous pastors over the year, I mentioned Erwin Lutzer or Harry Ironside or Warren Wearsby, and, and so they're all watching, and you're not like Warren Wearsby, they tell me. I'm not like Erwin Lutzer, they, they tell me. 
Uh, and, I, and I get that. I'm not bothered by that. We're actually dear friends. Uh, Pastor Lutz and I talk all the time. Uh, but, but the reality is, is sometimes I get these letters, and, and sometimes they're signed, sometimes they're unsigned. I'm going to share with you a signed letter that was actually perhaps the favorite letter I have ever received at a church ever. Let's take a look. It says this. I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church Online. This person doesn't live in the Chicagoland area, but they listened. After listening to it once, praise God, he's listened to it twice at least. After listening to it once, I listened again, two times, because I was awestruck. I'm excited now by the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. Okay, well, I was going for something else. Uh, so the second time I listened, that's two, I'm so excited. So the second time I listened to go deep into the Word of God, no, 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 no. So the second time I listened, I saw in the first 36 minutes of your sermon, you adjusted your glasses 74 times. So he watched it twice to make sure how many times. And then you took them off, so I counted no further. I appreciate his use of the English language, right? That was an average of once every 30 seconds. He got a calculator to be sure. This man loved my sermon. Maybe he watched it again because the next phrase might indicate he watched it again. But keep in mind, this is an incomplete count, which I was wondering, because some of the time scripture or your sermon was on the screen and I could not see you. He goes on to say, I tell you this in Christian love because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that may distract listeners from hearing what you're preaching, teaching. I hope you will accept this knowing that I want your ministry to be as effective for Christ as possible. <laughs> Amen. I love this email, right? I put this email on Twitter. I put this on Facebook. I love this email. This guy really wants to help me. I genuinely believe I actually emailed him back and said thank you. But, but, but again, here's the thing I want you to hear. I wear glasses because I can't see. It's not a fashion statement. I understand my, my, my daughter, my youngest daughter told me, you know, people are wearing glasses today is like a fashion statement. They don't even need them. And I said, wow, there's a word for that. Dumb. See, here's the thing, I adjust my glasses because they slip a lot. So I'll do this kind of regularly. When I want to make a point, sometimes I'll do this to try to make the point. I don't know why, it's just natural. It comes out of me. But I adjust my glasses, it appears a lot. Now, I want to just stop right now because some of you have the idea, I'm going to count how many times and tell him after the service. No, don't do that. Don't tweet me the number, whatever else may be. But, but here's the reality is, right? You're, there's lots of people that I can see here and across all of our campuses. I know that you're wearing glasses, right? Don't be a Blackberry Creek. Don't be afraid. Streamwood Bartlett, join in. St. Charles, just acknowledge it. DeKalb, we wear glasses. Represent. All right. So we're excited about that. But people are wearing glasses are now clapping, right? Four eyes. Um, that was the drugs. Um, just want to get that out there. Now here's why I have to adjust, because here's what happens when my eyeglasses fall down, they don't focus right and I can't see. So I adjust my glasses so I can see. Now after that I got a product called Nerd Wax and so I put the Nerd Wax on and it stays in place a little bit better. But here's the thing, right? We wear glasses, you glass wearers. We wear glasses so we can see. And then the people who wear contacts are a little uppity compared to the rest of us. 
You didn't know there was like a whole competition here. But here's why. So I wear glasses and I have to adjust my lenses because over time they naturally, via gravity, slip down. Can I tell you? When you're a follower of Jesus, you get a new set of lenses, right? You get a new life, now you can have a new look. You look at, different, you look at the world differently through a different set of lenses. But the reality is you still live in a world and there's a gravitational pull to, to join into the lowest common denominator and you'll feel your spiritual supernatural glasses that God has given you in Christ. You'll feel them slip down. You'll get unengaged in the community. You'll find yourself arguing in ways that aren't helpful in social media. And what I want you to hear today is perhaps the Spirit is speaking to your heart to adjust the lenses that Christ gave you with new life. And to say, you know, I got a new life, so now I got a new look through a new set of lenses. And in doing so, it gives us the opportunity to see others around and minister to them. It's part of what they mentioned earlier about the book I, I just wrote. It's not even out yet. Uh, they have it here, but I, I had to get mine from here, which something's wrong with that. Uh, I was like, ah, look, there's books. Um, but our, my new book is called Christians in the Age of Outrage, right? Bringing our best when the world's at its worst. We live in a time when the worst thing Christians can do is to take off their supernatural lenses, see the world like worldly neighbors, even people we might agree with politically or culturally or socially or economically, and to see the world like they do. Jesus calls us to a different way. As Christians, we need to look through a new lens because we have a new life that's given us a new look. So number one on our outline is we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation, right? Sent on a mission of reconciliation. Here's what it says, right? See it on the screen. You can follow along. All this is from God. Well, what's this? The stuff before, right? I'm going to explain a little bit more about verse 14 later, but certainly 14, 15, 16, 17, all this, the new life, the new look, the new lenses, all this is from God. The new life is from God. Who reconciled. Now, I want you to see the word reconciled there. In the next two verses, I want you to notice how many times the word reconciled is used in one form or another because we're sent on a mission of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself who reconciled to us himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, there's two, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed the message of re to us the message of reconciliation. You want to love your community in a fractured world? Represent Jesus and his kingdom well by being an agent of reconciliation in the midst of the brokenness. It's actually interesting, there are two references here, uh, reconciling the world, you know, and trespasses against them, and, and we see this kind of parallel statements of what we're supposed to do, right? God, God reconciling us to himself through Christ, and he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling the world to himself, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see, it, it means that we're showing and sharing the love of Jesus, Right? We're sharing the love of Jesus because the world, don't miss this, the world is broken. There's a lot of brokenness around us. Jesus calls us to minister to them. And that, people sort of get that now. They get the church should be more involved in caring for, for people who are hurting in our communities. Community impact ministries matter because of that reality. Now, mind you, some people just think that's the only thing that we're called to. They quote a very famous quote. Maybe you've seen it on Facebook. Someone's posted it. It says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And it's quoted to St. Francis of Assisi. 
Preach the gospel at all times. Uh, if necessary, use words. There's only two problems with the quote. Number one, he never said it, so there's that. No one quoted him saying that to 100 years after he was gone. He, he wouldn't have said it. He was in a preaching order. Just remember all those quotes. Don't, don't believe all the quotes you read. Remember the quote of Abraham Lincoln about this very thing. Abraham Lincoln once said, don't believe all those quotes attributed to me on the Internet. So just remember <laughs> to be cautious. Number two, it's really bad theology. See, I want you to show the love of Jesus, but we also need to share the love of Jesus. The gospel is shown in deeds and shared in words, and both matter. So in this passage, right, God reconciled, reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's being born again, the new life in Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, but the whole world's broken, and we're bringing reconciliation as followers of Jesus into a broken world. So as Christians, we look through a new lens that we have to adjust sometimes because it's easy to get caught up in the world. A new lens because we have a new life that's given us this new look. Now, now again, changing the world, what does that mean? What does it mean to be about changing the world? The world's changing uh, and, and Christianity's changing and, and, and where are we on things? Let me, let me show you some stats in just a moment. Let me tell you why I'm going to show you some stats. Uh, for the last 10 years, I ran a research firm called Lifeway Research. I'm not there anymore. But for 10 years before I moved here, two years ago, I was the leader at Lifeway Research. So now every time I quote a statistic, an angel actually gets its wings. So it's important that I do that in every message. Let's look at the age of outrage, right? So we look at here, a couple of stats will help us do it. This is actually from the book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World's at Its Worst. And uh, there, there's a forking going on in our culture. I call it cultural forking. And, 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 and I want to talk about it in just a second, but I want to show you something that might be helpful to you. Typically what I do is I'll, I'll have a crowd, and because we're at multiple campuses, it's hard to do this, but I'll, I'll ask the crowd and say, all right, this third, tell me what the church attendance you thought. What was church, regular church attendance in the 1930s and the 40s? And they all start yelling out numbers, and I average them, and that's how real research is done, by the way, averaging of shouts. And I average the shouts, and typically it's about 75% of people, excuse me, about, most people say it averages out to about 75% they think people regularly attended church in the 1930s to the 40s. Then I get in the middle section, I say, all right, you're the, you're the 50s and 60s. What percentage attended church then? And there's some shouting, and they get to about typically 50%. So they see 75% in, let's say, 1940, and we get 25% in 1960. And then I ask the rest, I say, what about today? And typically they say about 25%, and, and it ends up over here. And it's a pretty clear line from 75 down to 25. And it feels for many of us that Christianity has kind of collapsed. And there are books that tell us that and research that tells us that that's not really very good research because here's why. The percentage of people who claim they go to church last week in 1938 is about the same percentage of people who claim they go to church today. There hasn't been a collapse in church tennis, a little peak in the 50s, a little peak in the 80s. You say, Ed, how can this be? It, I mean, it seems the world is a lot less Christian. My world's a lot less Christian. It is, and I'm going to explain why. But what I want you to hear is this, is that the percentage of people who regularly attend churches remain relatively steady. You say, Ed, don't people exaggerate their church attendance? They do. We have a technical word for that. It's called lying in the field. <laughs> Actually called the halo effect is the technical term. But here's the reality, they lie consistently across the decades, so we know that. So if the percentage of people who regularly attend church has remained relatively steady for decades, and by the way, that's what Pew Research would say, and that's what Gallup would say, that's what every real researcher would say, what's happened? 
Actually, let, me, let me show you a little bit of a cultural forking again. Let me zoom in a little bit on this chart that you saw a minute ago. It kind of talks a little bit more about this. If you look, this is uh, the general social survey done at the University of Chicago every two years now. And this is actually the people who regularly attend church from 1972 until today. And you see a bump in certain years, like what happened there? And you typically, it might be sample size. So, so what we find is the percentage of Americans who regularly attend church has declined. The percentage of evangelicals who attend churches like ours has actually increased since that time. But the percentage of Protestants and non-denominational people who regularly attend church has declined slightly. But the culture has shifted greatly. And I want you to miss that. See, this is the, ki- the picture I want us to see. Now, why does this matter? Because there's something going on in our culture. Let me use my hand as an example. I was talking to a reporter for USA Today, and, and I said to her that, you know, Christians sometimes feel a little bit marginalized in our culture, like, like we've lost influence and more. And, and she kind of she laughed at me. She chuckled at me. She was, she was Jewish and, and, and from New York City. Kinda, we, we traded some Yiddish terms now and again. And she said, said you, you Christians feel marginalized? said, you Christians have had every single president since the nation began. Then I realized we were using the word very differently. Because I don't know about you, but I don't see all of our presidents as wonderful examples of Christ-like God-honoring faith. Now, maybe you do, and I've got some land to sell you, beachfront in Nevada. Um, (laughs) So she challenged me, and I wrote an article for USA Today, and I explained, really, there are four categories of people who might have religious definitions in the U.S. About 25% of Americans say they're not Christians. About 75% say they are. We're going to use my hand as a statistical tool. About 75% of people say that they are. Now, here's the reality. You don't believe them. Now, that's a strange thing. I was talking to the reporter. I said, well, you know, we don't actually count all them. She says, let me get this straight. 75% of people say they're on your team, but you don't count them on your team. You're doing this wrong, she says. But the reality is a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians, maybe many of us here, who didn't know what it, mean to be, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus until somebody shared with us the gospel. That Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place, and that by grace and through faith we can receive and be born again and become followers of Jesus. But there was kind of this idea that this 75% did sort of stick together. It was actually higher. It was actually 80 years ago. It was 85%. But what's happened is this, is that these people in the middle, I gave them names in the article. I called these folks cultural Christians, all kinds of people like that. When you ask them, are a Christian, they hear, are you a good person? So they say yes, but they don't, having been to a church, even on Christmas and Easter. That's about 25% of Americans. About 25% of Americans are congregational Christians. You'll see them on Christmas and Easter. We call them Christers. We're thankful for them. But churches get filled on Christmas and Easter because about 25% of the population says they're a Christian and maybe they get married, maybe they attend Christmas and Easter. And about 25% of the population, all different kinds of groups, right? Uh, Mormons and Catholics and mainline Protestants and evangelicals. So I'm not saying they're all Christians. I'm not saying that all those in that category. But these are people who say they're Christians, kind of plan their whole lives around it, okay? About half of them evangelicals like we would be here at Christ Community Church. So, but here's the thing, right? This is what it used to look like. This was kind of the team sort of stuck together. So in the 50s, even though church attendance wasn't dramatically or remarkably higher, they kind of, there was more of a religious culture. Some say, I want to go back to that. You don't want to go back to that because when we had more religious influence in our culture, we, a lot of people of color were oppressed. So people of color, women, other marginalized people, they, they, they're not yearning to go back to the 50s, even though we had more religious influence. 
So, but what's happened is this, is right, this is, this is what's key, right? So this is sort of what it looked like. We had sort of these streams of convictional Christians, congregational Christians, and cultural Christians, and then about 25% non-Christians, about half of them secular. But what's happened is there's a shifting going on in culture, and I'm calling it cultural forking. Take a look on the screen. This is a graphic from uh, Christians in the Age of Outrage. Because if you go back 20, 30, 40 years in the past, there was kind of a separation. The non-Christians were sort of in the minority. And, and you know, half the non-Christians were non-Christians because they were something else. They were Hindu or Jewish, Jewish or Muslim. And, and, and now it's shifting. Now what we're finding is, is that cultural Christians and congregational Christians, where we used to be more in, engaged in the mainstream culture, they've now more engaged with secular consensus. So now it feels a lot more lonely on the side where you're saying, you gotta know Jesus and he's gonna shape your life. He's gonna shape what you think about how to deal with others. He's gonna shape what you think about marriage. He's gonna shape what you think about morality. He's gonna shape what you think about uh, so, so many things. And so now the culture has shifted. We really were never a religious majority. There's never been a time in any of your lifetime when the majority of Americans regularly attended church. Never, never. You have to go back to the 1800s to find that. But what's happened is we're acknowledging we're not a religious majority, we're a convictional minority. And there's now a gulf between what often we believe and maybe what increasingly the world believes. And so how do we respond? The good news is this is not a surprise to God. And this is not the first time this has happened. Let's look at number three in our outline. Representing Jesus and his kingdom. Okay, we start at number one. We get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. It says this, we are, now we here is actually referring to Paul and the people with him. He says, we are, we're going to apply it to us, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God may be, when God were making his appeal through us, we implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So you want to love your community well, right? Represent Jesus and his kingdom and be an ambassador. Be an ambassador for him. This is the center of it. We represent the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Jesus calls us to seek his kingdom. When we seek his kingdom, we become subjects of the king as subjects of the king living in a world that's increasingly hostile to our values, our beliefs, our ideas. We represent him as an ambassador, your home as an embassy. It's not always easy but there's always opportunity. The kingdom has come because Jesus has come. The kingdom of God is here. You're citizens of the kingdom because you've received new life in Christ. As citizens of the kingdom, you're an ambassador. Your home, this church, is an embassy. In a lot of places in the world, it's not as common in America, but if you come with me to, to Africa, parts of Asia, I just returned from the Philippines, you'll find all over the place churches that call themselves an embassy because they see themselves as representing the king of kings, as ambassadors. But being an ambassador is not always an easy task. Matter of fact, Paul, only one other time, actually one other time in our English Bible is the word ambassador actually used. It's actually in Ephesians. Take a look with me. It says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given, words may be given so to given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for I am an ambassador in chains. That's not such an easy ambassador's job. I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. See, I'm convinced that when we understand what Christ has done for us, we'll represent him and his kingdom in the midst of a broken and hurting world. 
Now, the idea of the king and the kingdom is kind of confusing to a lot of people, right? We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, right? The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is among you. But it doesn't look to me like the world has been made perfect and made right just yet. So theologians have a term that describe that. It's called the already but not yet. I mean, think about, you know, we'll come up on Christmas time in just a few months, and someone will read from Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, and we know that's Jesus, right? A son will be given us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. It goes on from there. But it's an interesting phrase. A son will be given to us, and the, governments will be on, the government will be on his shoulders. I don't know about you. But it doesn't feel to me like the government is submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ quite yet. Maybe you have a different view. But you see, we live between the times. And the question is, what is your role between the times? The already, the kingdom has come, we're citizens of it. And the not yet, we pray all things we made right. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My guess is you might remember the day. I'm going to help illustrate this with a day. I bet some of you remember the day, June 6th, 1944. If you remember that, what that day is significantly, just put your hand up. I'm not going to call any. Just see, you remember that day? No, just a handful at all of our campuses remember this. But I bet most of you don't remember what today is. Anybody know what today is? Just raise your hand if you know what today is. It's the reason we don't know what today is, but we do know what May 6th, 1944 is. May 6th, 1944 is D-Day. It's, I just finished watching the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Winston Churchill uh, biography last night, right? Or, and, 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 and so I got this on my brain just a little bit. But on D-Day, the amphibious landing of 160,000 soldiers on the beaches of Normandy, along with 24,000 paratroopers who kind of dropped down in the midst of foggy darkness and tracer fire, Long planning for this, this invasion of the continent of Europe. And everybody knew that if the invasion worked, the war was won. And that may seem strange to you because that's the first day of the great battle across Europe. But already the Nazis were struggling. Already there was difficulty. So everyone knew if they could keep a secret and nobody found out where the invasion was, they could get a beachhead into continental Europe and the war would be won. And that happened, right? But for after another full year, I mean, you didn't want to be a soldier, right? You didn't want to be a soldier landing on that beach on June 6th, 1944 on D-Day. But for another full year in Europe and longer elsewhere, the war battled on. But when you read the newspapers on June 6, 1944, it looked as if the war was won because it probably, almost certainly was. They knew that this invasion was the beginning of the end. And so the war was won, but the war was not done. Almost for another year, fighting raged on. More people died in that year than the rest of any other stretch of the war. Across France, into Germany, the Battle of the Bulge, across the Rhine. But knowing their cause was just, knowing what ultimately that was at stake, knowing they had already sealed the war's ultimate outcome on D-Day, they pushed forward with their Normandy invasion until they came to Germany. And on May 7th, 1945, a week after Hitler's apparent suicide in a bomb shelter, on that day was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. 
See, it wasn't until a few months later, though, you see the battle went on in the Pacific. Some of you remember this, and you're, you're recalling some of this. It went on in the Pacific. I just came back two weeks ago from the Philippines and visited the American cemetery there, and the battles are listed across. They went from island to island to island. And then finally, on September 2nd, right, years ago, September 2nd, yes, today, this is the anniversary that on the USS Missouri, they signed the end of the war. It's called VG Day, VJ Day. And the end of the war was consummated. So you don't miss this, right? At, on D-Day, the end of the war was inaugurated. It was going to come. But on VJ Day, the end of the war was consummated. It was here. And we live between the times. We live between this. This wartime picture is an analogy of what it's like right now. God's already establishing his kingdom because you're citizens of it. And then as instruments of his kingdom, through community impact ministries, we're pushing back the darkness. But sometimes that darkness is going to push back. Not every child you tutor, not every immigrant you help resettle, not, not every ministry to a young person that you do is going to work. But we continue knowing that on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, that ultimately the war was won, just the battle was not yet done. Are you following me? See, we live between the times. There's a 20th century sermon made quite famous later and published in a book. And the sermon was called, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And in the diction of the day, it was, It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. And they're bookends, if you will, of kingdom calendar, right? From Good Friday, when Jesus said, It is finished, to, to Easter Sunday, when he was raised from the dead. And, what, and, and, and the preacher, the African-American preacher, would, would preach this for decades and decades and would say, we're, we're, still, we're still in bondage. We're still in brokenness. It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. And the voice would raise with inflection. And so the reality is that's true for all of us. In this broken world, nobody gets out of it unbroken. It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. But for the Christian, as Philip Yancey writes, it's Saturday on planet Earth. And Saturday's a work day. Saturday's a community impact day. See, we're in this series called Have a Heart, asking for whom has God given you a passion. We're focusing on community impact ministries. And you can, if you're interested in meeting those needs, we'll put it up on the screen again right now. I give you permission to take out your phone right now and text and say, I want to be a citizen ambassador of the kingdom in the midst of its brokenness. Now, to be fair, many of you might have remembered VE Day. Most of you didn't remember VJ Day. And here's why. Because um, really the biggest, most important day was, was D-Day. I remember it, kind of secret. I remember it because today's actually my birthday. So easy for me to remember that this is my birthday. My mother told me when I was born, because always around Labor Day, she said the whole nation celebrated the pain I put her through in labor. <laughs> I believed her for a long time. Eventually I found out. It was actually nice when I came here. They, my birthday present was a copy of the book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. Your, your folks at Resource gave that to me. I was like, oh, what a neat birthday present. You would think my publisher would have done that. But nevertheless, I'm happy to... No, they did. They got it early here. So, so here's the thing, right? We live between the times. The question is, what will we do? As Christians, we need to look through a new lens because we have new life that's brought us this new look. Number four, and finally, I want to close with this, because of the cross. There's a shift in Paul's writing. It's like the tone changes to theology. It says this, right? It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God in him. This section almost seems out of place with the rest. It's not. Here's why it may seem out of place. Because it's a change to theology. This is the doctrine of imputation is what it's called. I know that's a big word, but listen, if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks, you can learn some theological language at church. So our sin is imputed to Jesus, right? Actually, let's go through the whole thing, right? Our forefathers and foremothers, Adam's sin was imputed to us, sinners by nature and by choice. We are and we were. I didn't have to teach my kids to do bad. I had to teach them to do right. So that sin was imputed. And then in Christ, right, our sin is imputed to Christ. So Jesus takes our sin on the cross. And then Christ's righteousness, the rest of the verse says, so we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Now, how does this fit with the rest of the verse? Here it is. Don't miss it. It fits with the rest of the verse because we are agents of reconciliation and ambassadors because of what Jesus has done for us. So out of a deep gratitude and a deep thanksgiving, right, we recognize Isaiah 53, 6 is about us. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's me. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place, he didn't just die for our sin. Our sin was imputed to him, deposited. It's a banking term in the original language. And God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin, our sin, my sin. Jesus died my death. He died a sinner's death. He wasn't a sinner, but he died a sinner's death. And in doing so, he gives me new life. And I got a new life, so now I got a new look because I got a new set of lenses. And we live between the times. And the question is, what will we as Christians do in the midst of those times? My exhortation to you is simple, to be an ambassador of the kingdom. Represent Jesus and his kingdom well. Do it through community impact ministries and more. Yeah, I'm actually encouraging you to live out your new life by engaging and serving others so they might know the light and the love of Jesus. How do you do it? Put on your, put on your glasses. See the world differently. New set of lenses. Work towards reconciliation. And people might be reconciled with God and with others. Seek to represent Jesus and his kingdom well in your community and do so because of what Jesus has done for you. He, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. As Christians, we look through a new lens because we have a new life that's given us a new look. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you today that indeed through Christ we've received this new and amazing new life. Father, for a lot of us, sometimes we sound a little bit more like those around us and a little less like the God who reigns above us. Father, would you remind us today to live a different way, to recognize that you've given us new life, a new look with a new set of lenses. And when they slip, help us to adjust them, Lord. I've got to adjust them in my life all the time. Father, I pray that even now you would speak to some people who are here, that you would speak about way, a way they might get engaged and involved in community impact ministries, maybe other areas as well. But Father, I pray for each of us that we would be obedient to your call and we would say, as Isaiah did, here I am, Lord, send me. Just with your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, could you say and pray that? Here I am. That's what Isaiah said. He said, here I am, Lord, send me. Just at all of our campuses, I wonder if you might... With your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you say that simple phrase with me? Here I am, Lord, send me. It's just what Isaiah said. 
Let's say it together, just softly but out loud, all of our campuses. Here I am, Lord, send me. Why don't you just have that openness to where God is burdening you, giving you a heart for, giving you a passion for. Say it one more time. Here I am, Lord, send me. In Jesus' name, amen.